Today, I speak with Nick Dunn from the United Kingdom, who will be sharing his story of suffering. Basically, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. As part of his security work, Nick was working on board an anti-piracy vessel to protect shipping from Somali pirates. However, on one such occasion, Nick and five of his colleagues were arrested by the Indian maritime authorities and falsely charged with intruding in Indian waters and thrown into prison for four years in South India. Together, they came to be known as the Chennai Six across the world. Nick, welcome to the show, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you for your kind invite. You're welcome, and thank you. Nick, when I read the article on the BBC website, I felt so sad reading what you had to go through. It was so unfortunate. And in that article, what really got my attention was uh, a video of you running out of the airport arrival gate, dropping your suitcase and into the arms of your loving sister and later on your mother as well. Please tell us about the emotions you were going through in those seconds. Uh, perhaps a piece of time you thought you may never get. It was a mixed emotions. It was like a very hard step to do. Um, spending four years away from your family and seeing them for the first time on UK soil as a free man, it was the best thing and anything could buy you know you can you can buy luxurious cars houses gifts with all the money in the world but money was no factor on that day it was the love that my family gave me the support they gave me to keep fighting and never give up that's what families are meant for isn't it it is yes um and i'll be always grateful for the support my family gave, especially the the fight that my sister led in to try and seek justice in an unjust way that I had my life put in hold. It was just a, a very harrowing time for my family and I. And you, you, like you said, you watched the video and you can see that... Um, it, if you don't feel any emotions on that video on seeing someone come and see that family after so long, I just don't know what kind of person you are. Absolutely. Nick, when I finished reading that story, what I thought also was that you, you actually have three parts to your life now. The years before you went to that prison, the time in prison, and the time after release from prison. And in this episode, I'm really interested to go through some aspects of that entire life journey. But first, let's start with the middle. Why were you on that ship? My previous job was maritime security, protecting uh, shipping lanes from Somali pirates. And I used to go on different merchant vessels. And quite a lot of the time, the crew would be Indian or Filipino, or mixed uh, nationalities. But the vessel that I was on was a company-owned floating armory uh, hotel, call it what you want, 
uh, vessel, a support vessel. Uh, basically, we would board a merchant vessel from that support vessel and vice versa when you've completed your job. So I we were supposed to be going to Sri Lanka and our company director told us we would be boarding the Seaman Guard Ohio. So we just thought nothing of it and we boarded the Seaman Guard Ohio and after a few days at sea we ceased operations we so, uh, were taking on fuel and provisions, and then there was a cyclone. And under the Maritime Act, um, in one of those situations, you can seek refuge at a neighbouring country, and the neighbouring country that we were near to was India. And one night on the 12th of uh, – well – the 11th of October 2013, I went to sleep and then I woke up and then we had been boarded by the Indian Coast Guard off the from the port of uh, Tutakarin and that was, I believe, the start of a four-year nightmare. Right. Maybe the Indian Coast Guard thought we had unwantedly strayed into their waters, but if they had used their laws they would have known that we pose no threat so is the normal the normal rule in maritime that if you if you do want to enter the waters of another country you need some kind of permission prior right a couple of days before but in the case of uh, any storm or cyclone then there's a provision that you don't need to you can take refuge that's what you're saying that is that 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 is correct if I, if we were going to port to say unload the ship's cargo etc i believe you've got to give 92 hours notice um but the the every every vessel's got a certificate level which determines which port the can and cannot enter and so if you get all these big container vessels they're on a tight uh time schedule so they go straight in before more or less anyone else because you know container ships take a lot of long time to unload etc but for our vessel we didn't have any cargo because we weren't on a client vessel we were on the company vessel but because it was a very choppy sea state because of the cyclone uh we under maritime act can seek refuge in a neighboring country and India know this, and they abused their the they abused international law. So you woke up, and there was somebody there. And what did they say? Did they say you're under arrest, or no? We we were boarded through the middle of the night by the coast guard. One guy was with a weapon on the bridge, telling us to go to the port of Tutukrin and the. The Coast Guard vessel Nakadevi was uh, circling our vessel to, at gunpoint to make sure we would not try and escape, etc. Um, one of the things that I noticed is we were heading towards the port at a very slow uh, speed, um, to which I believe we're only, say, an hour and a half away but it took a lot longer. 
And when we entered the port of Tutacarin, we had a welcome committee. There must have been on port side easy over 50 people. People from different organizations around India, as far as Mumbai, there is absolutely no way they would have gotten to the port of Tutacarin that quick. Not a million chances that would ever happen. We kept it to ourselves, but we believed we've been set up. We believe something else was happening. And we weren't aware of it. So we were kind of very apprehensive at the time. My goodness, is that when it finally sunk in that that you're in trouble? Well, it, it took a few days of, I wouldn't say interrogation, but different organizations, police organizations, maritime organizations, Navy organizations from around India. Um we were, because we deal in maritime security, we've got weapons and we showed these organizations our weapons which were stored away because we were not operating. They were locked in their pelly boxes. One person had access to that room and that was the tactical deployment officer. Obviously, the captain has overall responsibility of that vessel. So if he wanted in that a room he has got permission i do not have permission to go into that room unless i've been invited to go into that room so all these weapons and kit and equipment that we use on these merchant vessels for our job were all stored away so when different organizations came on the vessel we would show them the weapons show them the ammunition and and they were basically well there's nothing to be had here the the paperwork's all in order. Why are we actually here in the first place? So they would come and go, and it was and it, it was after it was probably around day three, day four of us being in port that the local boys' Q branch decided to, in their wisdom, say they found the weapons and basically had the weapons removed on day four. And I'm thinking, well, why wait another two days to remove us from the vessel? They didn't even tell us we were under arrest. They just said we are going to hospital for checkup. And I'm thinking, but why do I need to go to a hospital for a checkup? There's nothing wrong with me. However, it wasn't your typical hospital because why can't you take, say, cigarettes, people who wear reading glasses, your phone, your wallet, your belt. This is a strange hospital that we're going to. We're not stupid. We're not stupid. We knew exactly where we were going. And they and we we as professionals played the game. We all the day that we left the vessel, we all wore our company uniform because we're professionals. And we've got nothing to hide. We've done nothing wrong. But in the Indian uh, CID, Q branch's eyes, we were potential terrorists possibly staging a, a Mumbai-style attack on the nuclear power plant in Tutakarin. And that's some of the stuff they were 
portraying in their media. I've been called a terrorist, and that's not what I am. I spent my army career fighting terrorism. You spent quite a few years uh, working for the the British Army, didn't you? Yes, I, I was uh, a member of the parachute regiment, but we were in a different role to the other two battalions. So we worked alongside UK Special Forces. Uh, so I've did operations in Northern Ireland, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So... I, I wasn't just your typical Green Rolls soldier. I was working with the best of the best, and and I'm very proud to have served for Queen and Country and to serve the regiment that I uh, chose. But nothing in my military training could have prepared me physically for what I went through, but did give me a stepping stone in mentally preparing me. You said it took a while for you to be brought onto the show, what should have been a quicker journey. Um, in that time, did you guys have an opportunity to call the embassy? or The embassy had already been informed uh, once, of course. I think once the, we got to port, we were, ab- we were able to inform our British embassy in what was going on. Luckily, the nearest embassy to where we were was Chennai. So they were informed pretty quick from the British government in London. Um, however, they were denied access for to what we believe anyways. We, when we were in the police station in Tudakarin, we had no translator. We had no company liaison. We had no, no one from the embassy. We were in a hot, sticky situation in an Indian police station getting shouted at. We had very little to eat, little to drink. And this went from basically nearly 7 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening, where your mind is going like this. I've already told my family, we had to make phone calls to our family saying we're getting arrested. And that phone call for me is a very harrowing experience and it really hurts even to this day because obviously I had to ring my mum, my mother and later that year she suffered a double aneurysm and she was fighting for her life and she can't really speak properly anymore. So my last physical conversation with my mom was telling her that I'm getting arrested and I don't know when I'll next see her again and that eats away at me every day of the past six years now it's a a memory that's like yesterday and it hurts it really hurts because this shouldn't have happened this shouldn't have happened I believe there was an alternative motive to what happened to us it's like we were made an example of. Not a nice situation to be in. Of course not. And that's what we'll just spend the next few minutes talking about, uh, the not-so-good position to be in. Can you take us through the moments uh, when you were taken to that prison? And what were you seeing? What were you feeling? During the time in India, we went through three different prisons. The first ever prison we went to was the... 
Palum Courty prison. If anyone knows Palum Courty, like I say, you can easily look it up on Google Maps and on the internet to see what kind of prison it really is. And this is a prison that was built during British rule of India. And it's a very... We we turned up in the evening. It must have been about 11, 11.30 at night when we turned up there. And you're looking at these big iron daunting doors and you can see the date clearly when this prison was established and you think the British were in charge of India back then and we're, we're going into hell. We are literally going into hell. Um, and when we got finally into the prison and they realised there were six British involved in the 35 men that was taken, you could say, a prisoner, hostage, detained, arrested. They're all the words I can use to describe, you know, what the Indian police done. But you could see the the smiles, the sniggers on the, the guards. It was like the shoes on the other foot now, we're in charge now, look at you. And it was it was quite disgusting. It was like, hang on a minute. Th- this is the year 2013. India got their independence in 1947. Uh, so don't don't blame what happened to my what happened previous to what's happening now. So it it was they were just clapping the hands, saying, "Well, we've got British prisoners here," laughing, joking, and I was just—I wasn't scared. I was more. How's my family coping? I couldn't care about myself at this moment of time. I knew I was able to look after myself. I was more to the point thinking about my family. I've just told them I'm getting arrested, and I don't know when I'll next see them again. I woke my family up because of the time difference. To wake your family up and tell them, it's not a nice, not a nice feeling. And that's all I could think of at that moment of time going into the prison family and that was the first prison and then they moved you from there to another two yeah yeah they we spent a couple of days in palam courty uh the 10 indians they remained in palam courty i don't know why but they did um and we were moved to central prison two in puzal chennai and we got there in the evening after nearly a 14-hour drive. Basically, it was nearly 14 hours holding on for dear life, screaming and shouting to get the bus driver to slow down because we may crash. The amount of vehicle incidents that's that happens in India every day, each year, is it's quite uh, a horror uh, statistic. So I certainly don't want to be one of those in a vehicle uh, incident. So you, you couldn't rest, and you had you had the police with weapons, and you didn't know the state of the weapons, and the, they were kept on falling asleep, and the weapons are moving towards your head, and. 
you, you literally had your heart in your mouth for nearly 14 hours till we got, got to the prison. And then once we got to the prison, we just we just thought it's not getting any better. I know in life things have got to get worse before they get better, but this didn't have to happen full stop. So it, it was quite a, a very unnervy, harrowing experience. I've never been to prison in my entire life till India. And our prisons in the UK are total different to the prisons in India. Can you take our listeners to what you saw in that prison, what you had to experience? Um, we experienced verbal abuse because we practically were the the only white people in, in there. Yes, okay, there was a, a another white person from Russia in there, but we were a big group of white people in there for... And we were verbally abused. We had stones thrown at us. Uh, every day was a struggle to try and get food in the kitchen. Um, you would. It was. It was chaotic. It was a nightmare. We couldn't send letters to our families. It could only be done via the uh, British Embassy when they came to visit us. Um, I shared a cell with three other guys in a cramped little cell and we were all spread around this compound. Um, we all got sickness and diarrhea. And I remember when it was my turn and I just feel, I just felt absolutely ill. I was crying, trying to make it to the toilet, but then it just, it just happened D and V and I just stood there covered in my own feces and I was crying and I thought, I, I can't take this. I'm going to, we're going to die in this place. We're going to die here. That's the, how I felt. And, um, that was the reality of it. Uh, yes, it was only D and V, but you, just, you don't know what you've actually really got because the, the medical treatment was practically non-existent. They just gave you a couple of tablets and sent you on your way. I said I had to, I had to endure that when I was in the British Army, not in a, a prison. So they didn't take uh, our health into consideration at all. They couldn't care. Um, I've seen how the prison guards dealt with uh, very reluctant prisoners in the Lati technique. And I thought, I'm glad they're not going to try and hit me with a stick because I'll tell you where I'll be shoving that stick if they ever came near me. Um, I've seen, I've, I witnessed uh, an Indian prisoner with his throat slit, blood going all over, prison guards nowhere to be seen. It was just, it was just a, a hell. And that's why the title of my book is called Survive in Hell, because I literally went through hell. It was a disgusting time. Of course. And and how was um, how was food? Was that, I can't even imagine how 
that would have been, and that might have been very difficult for you as well. Well, we chose not to eat rice and dal. Um, we saw the rice and dal deteriorate in the prison. Um, we set in the like in the first prison. We were just get, we were just there for a couple of days, so they gave us boiled. They gave us boiled baked potatoes, which were still raw and center, onion omelette and and badam. It, it, it was awful. But we, when we got to the second prison in Puzal too, um, we we put ourselves in little cooking teams, and we're not we're not chefs here. We're, we're not chefs, so sometimes the food wouldn't be good but you weren't getting another meal so you had to eat it and if it looked like sludge and tasted like sludge you had to eat it because you didn't get anything else we cooked one meal and other things that we managed to get from say the prison shop was biscuits and cake not a substantial diet we lost a lot of weight unhealthily I lost 10 kilograms and people may think oh that's 10 kilograms but it was done in an unhealthy way I remember I, I'm quite a, a guy who's fond of going to the gym and I was quite a decent size and then when I came out I didn't realize how much weight I and withdrawn I looked till I came out of the second prison when uh, we won our case because my sister said at least you don't look like this this time still lost a lot still lost the same weight but it was done in, it was done gradually over the space of two years not 10 kilograms in six months living on practically one meal a day um, but most of the food that we ate it was like uh, a stew that's practically what we could really make from the vegetables that we were given you know two kilograms of potatoes onions tomatoes green beans you name it it, it wasn't the best quality either it was it was sometimes we would go up to the kitchen to get our food to prepare it and the, it was disgusting. It wasn't, I wouldn't even have uh, gave it to me dog. It was, and then you would end up kicking off with the, the kitchen manager and say, look, how we've got 23 people here. We need to cook for 23 people. That won't even cook for three people. How are you meant? Oh, and so it was for nearly six months. Every day was a struggle to cook our only one meal a day. Um, when we were convicted and went next door to Central Prison 1, things were a bit different. Still a struggle at the beginning because you've got to re-establish yourself all over again. Um, but the embassy were a bit more hands-on with the prison authorities in that prison. So were able to get a bit more uh, leeway in cooking in the kitchen. and Yes, sometimes the vegetables wouldn't be great, but we would just 
take the vegetables, take them to the jailer and say, look, how the hell are we supposed to cook with them? And he, and, he, and they were good. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie and say, oh, they were awful and this. Uh, they were good. They went out. They went across the road to the fruit and veg shop. They got us fresh veg. They brought them back. So I can't fault the prison there. However, it wasn't always the case. It just depends how uh, how they woke up in the morning. I suppose you you really need two things to survive such circumstances: um, physical strength and mental strength. What did you do to stay strong in both these areas? Um, well, physically strong, I kept physically fit. We we built our own Flintstone-style gym using sticks, sto- you know, sticks, stones, bed sheets to create little weights, uh, f- ripping flagstones out of the ground to create, like, say, a bench of some sort so we could lie on and do our trip. So we improvised, used our knowledge. And the prison saw this and uh, they dismantled it and destroyed it because it was their way of uh, controlling us. But we didn't give in. We just built more. And then we kicked up a stink with our embassy and saying, look, this is for our mental health. We need this to keep our sanity so the prison, the the let were the let were uh, crack on with the the weight, but to keep myself mentally going, it was down to people's amazing support. I was receiving letters from people around the world, as far as America, Australia, Canada, France, all around the UK. It was, you know, I'm I'm receiving these. Nice, lovely messages of people who've heard my story around the world and they are telling me one thing and one thing only. Do not give in. So I used to take whatever energy I could from these letters to get me through the days and to stay and remain positive mentally as I physically could. Yes, everything was always going to be a struggle, but it's only as hard as if you make it as hard for yourself. If you take little baby steps and build up to things, I believe things can be less daunting. And that, for me, every time I receive letters... I was happy. My morale went high because I knew in these letters it was going to be positive and it was going to be kind, amazing words from amazing people from around the world. So receiving these letters from lovely, amazing people telling me to not give in, was it, it was a real game changer in my survival. It definitely took me to another level in mental fortitude. I do believe I am mentally robust. Uh, Everyone in life goes through challenges. We all come to brick walls in life. I lost count on how many brick walls I overcome. Uh, I had to. I just had to 
get over that wall, go through the wall, whatever mental challenges I had to go through, I had to overcome them. And even with what's going on with this whole pandemic, there's two words that were drilled into me during my army days, which I used whilst in India and I'm using them now. And I, I, I wouldn't say stress to other people, but I, I, I use it in explaining and in, in examples. And, and the two words is adapt and overcome. You've got to adapt to your surroundings, adapt to a, a, a different way of life. And in doing so, you will overcome adversity and all odds. Absolutely. And I, and I want to touch some of those um, lessons that you've learned. I mean, it's always sad when bad things happen to good people. Uh, you often lose trust in the system. You, you lose trust in people. You lose trust in miracles. Uh, do you have any grudges or resentment towards people, authorities on both sides? Not really. Uh, the British government had their hands tied. I know they would not risk losing a trade deal over six British guys, especially during, at the time, uh, VJ Malia was going through trying to get him extradited from the UK. And... I was always I was thinking, you know what? We're not going to get freedom because they want him, and UK will not exchange six British guys for him. He's a criminal. We're not. But good job that never never uh, came to that. But the only bad thing I've got to say about the British government is back in July two thousand and fourteen, when the case had been quashed. I will, I and my other colleagues were physically free. We had no charges. We should have gone home. In Indian law, the police had 90 days to appeal. During them 90 days in Indian law, we do not need to remain in India. We had two different lawyers stating this in written format, we do not need to be here. We had a meeting in the embassy in Chennai. We had people from New Delhi come down, and we're saying, get us home. We do not legally need to be here. And the British government turned around and went, we believe they will not appeal. I said, you've not been dealing with these people. We have. They've got nothing and they still fight. It's like you can't convince these people that they've got no leg to stand on because they will find ways in slipping around the system. And when you're dealing with a corrupt system and you're dealing with a, a police force that is highly feared upon the public of Chennai, and Tamil Nadu, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? You have none. The the woman in charge of Pew Branch, who was in charge of the investigation, I don't hold no grudges. She 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 believed she was onto something, or maybe 
she was forced to do it by the politicians. We'll never find out. However, I met her face to face in her office and I showed her pictures of my mum with tubes coming out of her head, mouth. I showed her letters from our lawyers. I said, end this now. Look at the misery and carnage you are causing. End it now. And her response was, let the courts decide. I said, how can we let the courts decide if you won't turn up? How can we just, How can we finish this in court if your prosecutor doesn't turn up? In the UK, if a prosecutor doesn't turn up, they will try and find a new one and give them a, and give them a quick rundown and say, you need to digest this pretty quick, or they will throw the case out. But it never happened in, in India. It was, oh, well, we'll wait two weeks. And I'm thinking that's two weeks of more pain and misery we've got to suffer and endure. And that, that caused four years in the prison for you, didn't it? Well, it, it was four, four, four years, one month, all in total, in India. We'd done an accumulated time of two and a half years in prison. We spent a year and a half out of prison. About 15 months as a free man, because we, were, we spent three months signing bail twice a day. The case got quashed in July 2014. We should have came home. It should have ended then. But the, the British Embassy says, oh, they'll not appeal. Out of 90 days, they appealed on day 88. Two days before it was being over. If that's not a, a sucker blow, I don't know what is. That mentally set me back. I thought, these people are relentless. They are out to destroy us mentally. However, they didn't destroy me mentally. They, they hurt me mentally. But I made a pledge to myself. I made a pledge to my family. I will come out of this stronger with my head held high. Is that, was that the, the biggest lesson that you got from this ordeal? Not to give up, to have faith in yourself and in your family? Because you couldn't trust the justice system, you couldn't trust the commissions, the high commissions. It was just you. Yes. Yes. Uh, the lesson I learned was you never know what you're capable of in life till you are in a situation where you are battling for survival. I was battling for my freedom. I was surviving in hell 5,000 miles away from my family. I saw my family three times in person, and that was just my sister and one time my dad. I never saw my brothers. I never saw my, my mom because of her health issues. I never was able to see my friends. It was a very horrible situation. And, and another thing that I learned is you never know what's around the corner. One day I was doing my job. Next minute I was thrown in an Indian prison for a crime I've not committed. So you, you've got to be grateful for, for what we have in life, but you've also got to be a bit wise 
in how you go about your business in life. You don't want to draw too much attention in the wrong way, even though you know you're not doing anything wrong. But if you're in a foreign country, laws are different. What may be something petty and small in our way of life in a different country, it could be bigger than Ben-Hur. It, it could be massive. You just don't know. And in India, I always, always said our judicial system is based on the UK's judicial system. I'm thinking, well, if that's the case, why didn't it end in quick time? Why did it take four years? Absolutely. You mentioned you couldn't see your family, your friends, you were all you were disconnected from people who meant a lot to you. And and now that you're free, how are you repaying uh, that friendship and the care and compassion and the relentless fight they put for you? Um, well, I'm just taking each day as it comes. Um, I never take the stuff we normally take for granted. I appreciate life. I know what the the word freedom really means because I had my freedom stripped of me. Um, the only thing that they couldn't take away from me was my pride. Um, I do believe a part of my soul is still in India and I'll never be able to get that part back, but I'm dealing with my life. Uh, every day, I wouldn't say it is a struggle. There is times where it may be a struggle, but I have to deal with it. It's nice to see my family, my friends in person. Obviously, at the minute, it's a bit uh, difficult with the whole lockdown situation. But when I was in prison, I couldn't just pick up a phone. I couldn't video call like I can today. And this whole lockdown business for me, yes, it's it's not very nice. It's 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 horrible. A lot of people have never, ever experienced this ever in their entire life. However, with me having military background and me actually being in a lockdown situation, I know I can deal with this in a, a positive way. And if, if anything, I want to try and help those who are struggling in this whole lockdown situation because a lot of people are living in fear and a lot of people are thinking their own home is a prison and your home's far, far from being a prison. Of course. There is a saying that everything happens for a reason. Do you often think of that? No. What happened to us didn't just happen for everything happens for a reason. What happened to us is because two Italian Marines working for their British government didn't do their job properly. They murdered two Indian uh, fishermen off the coast of Kerala and we were made an example of their mistake. If they hadn't done what they'd done, we wouldn't have been in prison. We wouldn't have had four years lost of our lives. We wouldn't have gone through the torture that we had to endure mentally for their mistake. They didn't do prison time. They were hold, held up in an Italian embassy in New Delhi. We weren't. We weren't getting paid off our government. We didn't receive wages. My family's in thousands of pounds worth of debt just to keep a roof over me over the space of four years. 
sending parcels, spending money to come and visit me on my birthday. It all accumulates over the years. Yes, I was staying in a hostel. I wasn't living the life of luxury. Yes, I had to go out and maybe go to a few bars and clubs and restaurants because at the end of the day, it's good for your mental health. And if you sit and sulk and suffer in a hostel room, it's going to be more damaging. So I had to endure the time away from my family, but I also had to make do with what I've got to keep positive and a happy medium mental health level, if you want to put it that way. I can see that, uh, you know, there is, uh, there is uh, anger um, at the same time, um, there's forgiveness. And at the same time, you're also looking forward to putting those things behind you and, and, and trying to get on, get on with life. But I'm sure it's a, it's a phase in your life that's, uh, that you always wish didn't happen and you wish you know because you could have done a lot during those four years and it must be an, a feeling of great sadness almost a traumatic kind of feeling to go through every single day of your life these are things that you can't just forget and forgive and just keep going as if nothing happened i'm sure every day out of prison has been a struggle as well even though you have that freedom Yes, definitely. Um, I don't sit and think and dwell about what might have differently happened in the four years. Like my friends, two of my friends had uh, two babies in the space of four years. A few of us have had babies and married and and my life was on hold and everyone else's was just going through day to day and getting on with it. And I don't sit and think, oh, well, that could have happened to me and uh, this could have happened and that could have happened. And I, I don't, I don't, uh, there's no point. It never happened. So why think about shoulda, woulda, coulda? Because it didn't. What happened is I went to hell for four years. I nearly lost my mom. I lost my auntie. Um, it's mentally affected me, not majorly, but it has. It's left, it's left scars. It's left hurt. Like I said earlier, I, I do believe part of my soul is still in India, and I'll never be able to get that back. But just because of how it went down and how it affected me. But if this never happened to me, I wouldn't have a a book. That seems to be doing really well and selling, and and I, I wouldn't be obviously speaking to you. So, no matter how much bad things happen in life, you've got to try and find the good within the bad. And I've always said, sometimes you've got to go to the pits of hell to see the light. And I went to the pits of hell to see the light. And I powered on through and I kept on going and I, I never gave in. And I showed mental resilience and I came out with my head held high and said, look, you can take my freedom and strip away everything, but you'll never defeat my pride. 
especially when I'm an innocent man. That's the spirit, Nick. Yes, never give up. Stay strong. Make sure that you have an incredible sense of self-worthiness. Stay inspired. And no matter how tough the going is, eventually you'll come out on the other end as a winner. Can you tell us about the book? Uh, what does it deal with? Is it your is it an autobiography or is it just on this particular incident? The the book Surviving Hell it's it's kind of like a, a a little biography. The the majority of the book is about my time in India, but it's it's got a backstory of me growing up as a as a child and me leading my way into joining the British Army and then finding myself doing maritime security after six years in the British Army. And then, obviously, then it gets to the nitty-gritty of why I ended up in India in, in, in a prison. And it's it's got my story from my words and how I saw it all. It's got... Uh, chapters of my sister putting her uh, spin into things because she was leading a, a, a diplomatic approach into fighting for justice here in the UK. So she done a lot of campaigning and taking the fight to the British government to hopefully enable them to take heed on our com- uh, on our conviction and our time in India and hopefully get justice at the end of the day. And justice always prevails. Yes, it took four years for it, but it does prevail eventually. And and I will never, ever forget the, the stuff that my sister done and the legal team that we had representing us. Uh, our lawyer, she done a fantastic job. And everyone who supported me uh, and continues to support me with my book I will never ever forget that and they will always be in my heart and I feel very grateful and a lot of people have gave me great feedback on the book and and there's been tears and anger and Basically, a lot of emotions from other of our readers when reading my book. Because yes, they may have followed us on social media, etc., etc. But they're reading the raw, authentic, life-changing chapters as they unveil them, and they 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 speak to me and say, "Nick I had no idea. I had we we didn't hear much." We, we we didn't realize what you really went through and never did my sister till she had to read the the book itself she didn't know exactly what i went through and what we went through as a whole and so it, it opened a, a lot of people's eyes and it, it's it's something that i never thought i would ever do in my entire life i've done it uh, it's there to be bought on Amazon. Um, hopefully, it can get tran- get the translation to different countries. But you can you can buy it on Kindle version um, for those around the world. 
Um, but I can't thank enough. And the book's basically is a, a thank you for everyone for their amazing support because they're the ones that pushed me to do it. So it's like, it is like a little thank you from myself to them. The name of the book is Surviving Hell, isn't it? Yes. And do you see a movie or a, or a theater production coming out of this? <laughs> if, I had a, if I had a pound coin for every person that has said that, I'd probably be a millionaire by now. Who would you like playing, your, playing yourself if it's a movie? Uh, if, if my story book went to production for a movie, that would be amazing. It would be beyond my wildest dreams. Like, I'm just a, a regular guy. I wasn't really known in my hometown till all this uh, escapade happened. But I think Tom Hardy's a, a, a suitable candidate to play me because he's got such a, a love for the British military and veterans. And I obviously was a a former servant soldier for the British Army. And I think basically uh, he, he, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different role for he could play, but it's a good, it's a good I think it could be a, a good role. And if that ever does happen, I wouldn't know what, uh, it would be absolutely fantastic. Fingers crossed though, fingers crossed. We, we, I'm just taking each day as it comes, not getting ahead of myself. And, but if, a movie does come out of uh, my book. Like I said, it would be absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. Nick, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the very best in your life journey. I wish you all the good fortune. I pray that you keep yourself motivated and you keep going back to that inner strength to get over uh, whatever trauma or ill feel or difficulties that you may still have and that I hope that you continue to inspire others through your writing, through your talks, through more and more podcasts. And I hope um, that you will help a lot of people around the world understand what freedom really is and how important it is and why it is worth fighting for. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, like I say, I can, I can only try and uh, people have said, Nick, you're an inspiration. Me, uh, I wouldn't say I'm an inspiration. I just think I've just gone through a, a horrible time and it's. I think it's now the time to share my, my experiences and if somewhat I can help others deal with their mental battles, then I will do whatever I can. Um, and... Everyone goes. Everyone in their lifetime will go through a test. This was my test. I endured it. I survived it. I had to go to hell, but I, like I said, I survived it. And yes, I, I, I'm still. I would say the same person. A few little flaws here and there, but a lot mentally stronger than what I was. And I respect and appreciate more things in life now. And freedom is definitely one of them.